Something to note, all myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining. Because mythology comes from oral tradition, there's a wide variety across sources. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. Odysseus frantically looked around the hall, shaking his head in disbelief. It wasn't real. It couldn't be. Just seconds ago, Odysseus, the wayward king of Ithaca, had been sitting among the 108 suitors who had taken up permanent residence in his home. They didn't know his real identity. With the help of the gods, Odysseus had disguised himself as a beggar so that he could move about the palace without raising suspicion. They'd all been sitting at the table when it happened. The room started to change. Blood began to seep from the walls, the ceiling even bubbling up from the floors. Odysseus stepped back in panic and nearly screamed at the sight of the suitors. Each one of them had changed, and their faces were now gaunt and pale, as though they had died days before. And yet, they all continued about their rowdy conversation as if nothing was wrong. Odysseus closed his eyes and rubbed his head, hoping that the grotesque visages would be gone. But when he opened them again, he was greeted by the same crimson nightmare. Had they died somehow? Was this all an illusion of Hades? No, it was an omen, not intended for Odysseus, but for the 108 suitors who were all too arrogant to see the signs. Their blindness would be their undoing, for the goddess Athena had decreed that they were all going to die. Welcome to Mythology, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythology for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Mythology in the search bar. This is our fourth and final episode on the Greek hero Odysseus and his legendary journey as chronicled in Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. Over the past three episodes, we've covered Odysseus's arduous journey back home to Ithaca. When he finally returned, he discovered that his home was infested with sniveling suitors who were pressuring his wife, Penelope, into marrying them. This week, we'll wrap up our series on the Odyssey as Odysseus and Telemachus make their final move against the suitors, and Odysseus, finally, is reunited with his wife. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
Odysseus had ingrained himself among the suitors, who abused and insulted him because they assumed he was nothing but a lowly beggar. Telemachus, who by now was aware that the suitors planned to kill him, tried to keep the peace even as he kept his spear at the ready. And Penelope, with some help from Athena, had appeared before the suitors and declared that they should shower her with gifts to show their affection. The ploy only half worked. Every man present was desperate to prove themselves as the most worthy of Penelope's hand. They had all rushed from the hall at her proclamation. For a few minutes, it seemed like Penelope may have actually succeeded in getting the suitors to finally leave. But one by one, each suitor returned. They banded together to tell her they wouldn't leave the palace until she had picked a new husband. Instead, each of them had sent servants out to bring back lavish gifts. The day had grown long, and tempers were only getting shorter as the men continued to taunt and jeer at Odysseus. One by one, each man retired to sleep. And when the last of the suitors had turned in for the night... All right. It's time. We'll kill them in their sleep. No, we are not them. We will not debase ourselves by acting as they would, but they deserve to know that it was Odysseus and Telemachus who delivered them to the gates of Hades. But as you've said, there are so many of them, and only two of us. True. We'll need to tip the odds in our favor. How can we do that? Well, for starters, we'll take their weapons. Odysseus pointed toward the end of the hall and drew Telemachus's gaze toward the weapons racks that were set up there. The suitors' swords, spears, knives, and shields hung uselessly against the wall, as they had for years. So Odysseus instructed Telemachus to round up all of the weapons. Telemachus took the arms to a room far away from the hall and secured them with a lock. As he returned to the hall, he encountered Eurycleia, one of his mother's few remaining loyal maidservants, as she approached Odysseus. Excuse me, beggar. My queen, Penelope, has requested your presence. It seems she has some questions about my lord Odysseus. Will you tell her the truth? You may not get a chance alone with her before it's all over. Not yet. I can't be distracted from the task at hand. We'll deal with these scum, and then I can give Penelope the homecoming we've both longed for. With that, Telemachus retired to his room to rest. Odysseus went with Eurycleia to Penelope's chambers. Oh, good, you've come. I was worried that you'd gone to sleep. I'm quite old, my lady. I find that I don't need much sleep at my age. I went ahead and had one of our finest guest rooms prepared for you. You are far too kind. I'm afraid your offer must be in vain. I can't sleep in beds after so many years as a beggar. I find I prefer the ground. I too cannot sleep, but only because of the dreams that haunt me. I see my husband's face, or what I remember his face to look like. Faces may wither with age, but the content of the heart stays the same. Wise words coming from a beggar. You said you knew of my husband? I knew him, actually. So you wouldn't mind if I asked you to describe him? To prove that you speak the truth? I see no harm in it. Odysseus was tall and strong 
He had a beard. The same could be said of any Greek man. He wore a purple cloak with gold clasps and a brooch in the shape of a hound pinning a fawn in the midst of the hunt. His sword was of the purest bronze, and his tunic was some kind of fine silk, fringed and sheer against his body. Penelope now knew that the beggar spoke the truth, for she had been the one to give him the purple cloak and the brooch. There was nothing like that brooch in all of Greece. She wept in front of her disguised husband and then apologized for the show of emotion. She summoned Eurycleia and had her wash Odysseus's feet. And while Penelope's back was turned, Eurycleia spotted something, a scar on the beggar's foot. She recognized it immediately from all the times she had washed the feet of her master, Odysseus. She looked up at the beggar. Their eyes met, and right then, she knew. But she kept her mouth shut as Penelope moved out from the room for a breath of fresh air. As Penelope stood over on the balcony, Eurycleia addressed the beggar in a hushed whisper. I've seen this scar before. I remember a day, long ago, when Odysseus set off with his grandfather, Autolycus. The young prince returned with a deep cut on his foot from where the boar had nearly gored him with its great tusks. I cleaned that wound. It must be you, Odysseus. Odysseus nodded, confirming her suspicions. Eurycleia couldn't help herself. She wrapped her arms around the beggar, embracing her long-lost king. And as Penelope made to move back into the room, Athena sent a burst of wind through the palace, stumbling the queen and distracting her from the sight of her maidservant embracing the beggar. Odysseus took advantage of the moment to swear Eurycleia to silence. You have always been the most loyal among Penelope's servants. I beg you now, please keep this between us. I do not know what to make of any of this, but you are my lord. I trust you completely. Eurycleia did not know what was going on, but she trusted Odysseus. She nodded, indicating that she would do as he asked. The maidservant finished washing Odysseus's feet and then left him alone with Penelope. I had terrible dreams the last time I slept. Oh? I saw an eagle swoop down on a flock of 20 geese. One by one, the bird slaughtered them all, picking them apart and devouring their innards. And then... It looked at me and said that it was my husband. I don't know what to make of it. Well, I'm not a learned man, but it would seem the gods are telling you that Odysseus will soon be back and he'll kill these wretched suitors. Can the gods be so gracious as that? For all this time, I thought I was being punished for something I or my husband had done. Patience and faith are all we can offer the gods, in the hopes that they shine good fortune on our lives. I have not been shown good fortune in quite some time. And so Odysseus and Penelope both tried to sleep, though neither had much luck. 
Odysseus was full of dread and anticipation for what the day would bring, and even as Athena reached out with her godly powers and tried to soothe him, he still could not rest. Penelope's words had affected him greatly. He'd spent most of the last ten years dwelling on his own suffering and had not given much thought to what his wife was going through. To see her, now, still standing strong, despite all she had suffered, filled him with a great rage at the suitors who had inflicted that pain upon her. When he awoke the next day, his anger had not subsided. He knew it wouldn't be long before he killed the suitors, but he still knew he had to wait until the opportune moment. So he and Telemachus once again faced the suitors in the morning. At the breakfast table, Odysseus kept his composure as he considered the face of every man around him. He would show them no mercy. They were all going to die that day. Next, Odysseus retakes what is his with bronze and blood. Now, back to the Odyssey. Unbeknownst to the suitors, Odysseus and Telemachus had secretly taken all of their weapons and hidden them away from the main hall. Now, all that remained was to wait until the opportune moment to strike— that is, if Odysseus could stomach the suitor's abuse for that long. Ugh. I woke up this morning and hoped that my memories of the filthy beggar who disgraced this hall were just a dream. Sorry to disappoint you. Did you become more filthy since yesterday? Perhaps your eyes are just getting weaker. They sat for breakfast, and throughout the meal, the suitors continued to lob insults at Odysseus. Gods, who taught you how to eat? You disgust me. I've lost my appetite. Then hand over your food. It'll go to better use if I eat it. How do you mean? Well, food is essential to life. And I think the world benefits far more from my life than yours. <laughs> Tasipus, one of the more arrogant suitors, detested the sight of the beggar enjoying himself. So he lobbed a cow's hoof at the man's head. Stop it! I'm tired of warning you to leave him alone. Oh, it's fine, good king. These men are as poor at throwing debris as they are at throwing insults. No one at the table knew it, but Athena was at work here. She used her godly magic to make the suitors more and more aggressive, so that Odysseus's anger would not subside. And when the meal was over, Odysseus looked up and beheld a terrifying sight. The walls were oozing blood. The suitors appeared like ghosts. He stood from the table, suddenly and in shock, and approached Telemachus. Do you see that? See what? The walls, their faces. It's monstrous. Telemachus could not see what his father spoke of, and as Odysseus realized that what he was seeing wasn't real, couldn't be real, he realized that it was an omen, not for him, but for the suitors. 
The omen was clearly a sign that the time to act was soon. Odysseus began to mentally prepare himself for what was coming. As he did, all of the suitors turned to behold Penelope as she sauntered into the hall. I have made my choice. At long last. What's that bow for? Is it a gift to the man you've chosen as a husband? Not quite. This is the bow of Odysseus. It is one of the most powerful weapons in all of Greece, and only a handful of men were ever mighty enough to wield it. If any among you are able to string this bow and fire an arrow through this row of twelve ceremonial axes, then I will marry you. The men all scoffed at the challenge. Penelope had been dangling marriage before them for years, always bringing in more and more mundane tasks to keep them at bay. And now she wanted to have an archery contest? What's the matter? Surely one of you is not so weak that you can't do something as simple as string a bow and fire one measly arrow. Be gone from here, beggar. This no longer concerns you. When I best this challenge and have Penelope as my bride, my first order as King of Ithaca will be to have you killed. The men threw more food at Odysseus, who quickly stood and made his way outside. There, he ran into Eumaeus, the swineherd, who was accompanied by another friendly Ithacan, Felicius. They were followed by Melanthius, the cruel man who had attacked Odysseus on his way to the palace the previous day. Melanthius went inside, but Eumaeus and Felicius stayed behind at Odysseus's urging. Well met, friend. Have the suitors started treating you any better? No, and it will be their downfall. I'm almost certain I can trust you, Eumaeus. Tell me, can you keep a secret? I'd like to think so. Look at this. Look at my foot. And so Odysseus showed Eumaeus the scar on his foot, the very one that identified him as who he truly was. My king? Can it be? Is it really you? Oh, Not this... so loud. Now listen. I will need your help in the battle to come, for we are going to rid my hall of these suitors once and for all. If you help me today, then from this day forth, I will consider you as sons, brothers to Telemachus, entitled to a share of my kingdom. You honor us, Odysseus. We will fight by your side, and we will not let you down. Odysseus ventured back inside the house. As he returned to the suitors, his new comrades began barring all of the doors into the hall. Ugh! Curse this damn bow! As Odysseus came upon the suitors, he found that none of them were able to even string the bow, much less fire it. Each man set the twine of the bowstring at the top end of the bow, but none were strong enough to pull the string all the way to the other end of the bow and effectively string it. The bow was too large, and the string wasn't pliable enough. Indeed, it was a weapon that only a true hero could hope to wield. Seems my father was mightier than you give him credit for, Antinous. Well, why don't you give it a try, boy? Telemachus accepted the challenge, but after he had fastened one string to the end of the bow, he found that even he was incapable of fully stringing it. The bow must be some kind of trick. No man could string it, much less fire it. This was never the bow of Odysseus. 
This is just another ploy by Penelope to keep us waiting even longer. Is it really so hard for you to accept your own inferiority? That's rich, coming from the likes of you. Let me try it. <laughs> You've had too much wine, old man. Get out of here before I throw something at you. You've already thrown something at me, and I'm still here. Let me try. So Odysseus sat before the great bow that he had used so often, so long ago. His strong fingers wrapped around the smooth wood. Every man in the hall, save for Odysseus, stared on in horror as this beggar before them effortlessly strung the mighty bow. It could be done. How is this possible? It must be a ruse. Even to the end, Antinous, you cannot seem to accept your betters. With that, Odysseus knocked an arrow and drew the string all the way to his cheek. He did not need to aim. Years of combat and a lifetime of discipline had made archery second nature to him. The suitors couldn't believe it as Odysseus let the arrow fly and saw it sail through all 12 of the lined-up axes. The suitors all turned their heads, following the arrow as it buried deep into the wood of the far wall. How can this be? Your eyes do not deceive you. Look at me, all of you. And when the men turned back to look, they did not see the beggar before them. Athena, watching from above, lifted her magic veil over Odysseus. He was no longer the hunched old beggar, but the great hero. Some of you may not know who I am. That's a shame, since you've lived in my home, eaten my food, harassed my son, and coveted my wife for these long years. Odysseus? How can that... <gasps> Quick as an eagle snatching its prey, Odysseus let fly another arrow, which buried itself in Antinous's throat. The cruelest of the suitors collapsed, choking on his own blood. The men looked on in horror as Odysseus revealed himself in all his might. There were some among them who knew right then and there that they were doomed, but that didn't stop them from trying to escape. <laughs> Getting out of here won't be so easy, I think. The men fruitlessly pushed against the door to the hall, but it did not budge. As Odysseus had ordered, Eumaeus and Felicius had barred every door in and out of the hall, leaving the unarmed men trapped inside with Odysseus and his allies. The men turned, and Eurymachus, one of the craftier of the suitors, stepped forward. He tried to insist that Antinous was the bad apple of the bunch. Now that he was dead, there was no reason that the rest of the suitors needed to die. This man begs for mercy. Father, what should we do? <laughs> Who do you think you're talking to? I've been here, among you, as a beggar. I've seen how you've treated guests under my roof. Consider this. I was absent these 20 years because I was called to fight in a war. I did my duty, and then I suffered for 10 more years just to get back home. What have any of you done that warrants praise? 
Nothing. You are all scum and parasites, and I will spare none of you. Eurymachus led the first charge at Odysseus, waving his fists in a futile attempt to seem intimidating. He fell to another shot from Odysseus, as did several of the other men. Some of them rushed for the row of axes, which were the only weapons available in the hall. But these axes were just decorations. Their blades were dull, and their handles were too heavy to wield. Ah! I will join you in this battle, father. Together we will take on these braggarts and swine. Aim true, son. So Telemachus joined the fray, thrusting his spear with grace through the chest of this man and that. He couldn't help but enjoy it. A lifetime's worth of resentment at these pretenders had finally boiled over. He relished the sensation of cutting them down. Then, Eumaeus and Felicius rushed in, eager to join their king in the fight. Odysseus drew his sword and cut down the unarmed men, who could do little but try and run from him. Telemachus quickly led Eumaeus and Felicius into the storeroom, where he had hidden the weapons the night before. Arm yourselves, quick! Then let's get back to the fray. The men were so eager to return to the fight that they forgot to lock the storeroom on their way out. This was a mistake, as they were being watched. For Melanthius, the goatherd who had been so cruel to Odysseus when he first approached the palace, had heard the commotion from the nearby field and come to investigate. He saw that the weapons were hidden away in the storeroom and quickly made his way to them. After Telemachus, Eumaeus, and Felicius rushed back into the hall with their weapons, Melanthius snuck into the storeroom and found the arms that Telemachus had hidden from the suitors. Quickly, he gathered as many spears and swords as he could carry and rushed back into the hall. Melanthius called out to the suitors as he rushed in, tossing them spears and swords. Now armed, the men gained some unearned courage. How did they get those weapons? Someone got into the storeroom, but it does not matter. At least now they'll make it a challenge for us. Odysseus hurled himself into the crowd of now-armed suitors, deflecting blow after blow as he continued to cut down the men. He winced as the blade of a spear sliced through his arm, but he continued fighting. We need shields! On that order, Eumaeus and Felicius rushed back to the storeroom to grab shields. There, they encountered Melanthius as he was attempting to make his way to the hall with another stockpile of weapons for the suitors. Well, what have we here? Eumaeus and Felicius tackled Melanthius to the ground, quickly overpowering him and tying him up. The battle continued to rage in the hall. The dozens of men who remained marveled at Odysseus's ferocity, even as they swarmed him and jabbed with their spears. The tides were turning. Odysseus was being overwhelmed. Telemachus was dripping sweat and blood from his arms as the remaining suitors continued to push back against them. A blade sliced Odysseus's thigh, and he went down. He looked up at the men as they surrounded him. 
But then, Athena herself descended onto the hall, adorned in her godly armor. With a mighty yell, she leaped into the fray, turning the tide once again in Odysseus's favor. With that, the battle was over in mere seconds. Is it over? It's done. Ithaca is ours once again. Next, we'll conclude the epic saga of the Odyssey. Now, the conclusion of the Odyssey. Odysseus had finally revealed himself to the suitors and implemented his plan to recapture Ithaca. With the help of his son and the goddess Athena, Odysseus had slaughtered all 108 of the unwanted guests. Now Odysseus, Telemachus, Eumaeus, and Felicius began to round up the palace's servants, separating those still loyal from those who had gleefully served the suitors. The bloodshed, it seemed, was not yet done. These are the maids and servants that served the suitors. They tended to their needs and ignored mother's orders. They even conspired against her and tried to persuade her into marrying one of them. My king, the battle is over. These people are not warriors. Perhaps mercy is the best course of action. No. These suitors were pox on my kingdom. We must root out the infection, all of it, if we are to return to our former glory. Telemachus, have these disloyal wretches killed. Here, your sword. No, I will not cut them down. That's too good for them. Telemachus had the loyal servants round up the disloyal and march them outside. Once there, the prince of Ithaca had each traitor hanged for their crimes. Hanging in the Greek world was considered a disgraceful death, much less honorable than a death by the sword. It is done. Shall we summon mother? Not yet. There is still some bad bit of business to attend to. Eumaeus and Felicius then brought forth Melantheus, the traitor who had armed the suitors and nearly caused Odysseus's death. They forced the traitor to his knees before his king. You deserve a particular punishment, Melantheus. By now you realize that I was the beggar you kicked on the road. Your cruelty alone would be enough to seal your fate, but you had to do more even after I revealed myself as Odysseus, even after you saw that your true king had returned, you still decided to work against me. You brought weapons to my enemies, who nearly killed me and my son. There is no fate for you, except to suffer in the deepest pits of Hades. Then, on Odysseus's orders, Melantheus was mutilated. His nostrils and ears were cut off, as were his hands and feet. He was then disemboweled and tossed outside as food for the dogs. Maid, you're Clea. Yes, my king? Have the servants gather sulfur and lye, and as many braziers as we have. We will use smoke and fire to rid this hall of the stench of death. But first, would you mind fetching my wife? Penelope had, perhaps thankfully, slept through the entire affair. 
When Euryclea told her what had transpired, Penelope balked. <laughs> I must still be dreaming or else the gods have decided to torment me further. Get out of here, Euryclea. I don't know if you're trying to be funny, but you aren't. I'm sorry, milady, but it's true. I cannot leave here without you by my side. Fine. Fine. But when I prove that you've been lying, I'll have you ousted from this castle. By the gods! Penelope had dreamt nearly every night for 20 years of her husband's return. She'd imagined it so vividly how she'd walk to the beach as his ship crested the horizon and how she'd rush into the waves as he approached the shore and took her in his arms. But one rarely gets what they want in the way they expect. So when Penelope entered the hall, she came across the macabre sight. One hundred and eight men were dead, their severed heads and limbs strewn all about the great hall of Ithaca. Blood spattered the walls and dripped from the ceiling, pooling on the floor and staining the wood a deep crimson. And in the middle of all of it, covered in blood that was both his and that of his enemies, stood Odysseus, her beloved, her husband, her king. Only then did Penelope realize that this was not a dream. Penelope, I've thought of nothing but this moment for close to 20 years, and I'm sorry, my words are failing me. Mother, father has returned. Aren't you happy? No, no, this is a trick. Dionysus or Hermes. Yes, I must have done something to anger one of those cunning gods. And now they're, they're punishing me by showing me what I want most in this world. I am no conjuration. It is I, Odysseus, your husband, here in the flesh. Whatever nymph or spirit you are, know that you are cruel. Euryclea, go to my room and remove my bridal bed. Cast it out of the palace. I have given up all hope of Odysseus returning. Ha! <laughs> you know you can't move the bridal bed. It's built around the stump of an olive tree. It cannot be moved without being cut into tiny pieces. I should know. I built the thing myself. It was only with that proclamation that Penelope came to accept the truth. The man before her was her husband, returned to Ithaca at last. She rushed to him and fell into his arms. As Odysseus embraced his wife, his mind raced through all he had gone through to reach this point. The war, the giants, the cyclops, Circe, the sirens, the underworld itself— how many lives had been lost or wasted just so Odysseus, son of Laertes, could return to the comfort of his wife's arms. But as he thought these things, Odysseus realized that he didn't care. He was back where he belonged. He was with Penelope and Telemachus, and in that moment, all seemed well with the world. While we're ending our story here, 
Odysseus's story continues on in one final book whose existence is somewhat controversial. In that epilogue, Odysseus faces some of the fallout of his actions. Telemachus warns his father that they need to be careful in how they reveal Odysseus's return to the people of Ithaca. Telemachus points out that Odysseus has literally killed two generations of Ithaca's young men. The first was the group that left with Odysseus and either died in the Trojan War or on the return journey. The second was the group that they had just slaughtered in the hall. Odysseus and Telemachus travel to visit Laertes, Odysseus's father. The tearful reunion is interrupted by a mob of angry Ithacans who learned of Odysseus's return and of his killing of the suitors. As Odysseus and Telemachus prepare to do battle once again, Athena descends on the crowd and orders them to disperse. Thus, peace returns to Ithaca, and the Odyssey concludes. The 23rd book of the Odyssey feels in many ways like the true ending. The emotional climax of Odysseus's long-delayed reveal to Penelope and the victory over the suitors is a satisfying conclusion to the drawn-out second half of the story, even if some of the plot threads, such as Laertes' fate, seem to be left dangling. Still, regardless of which ending is textually correct, the Odyssey reigns as one of the most influential works of fictional storytelling in existence. The very name Odyssey has come to be synonymous with literature focused on the hero's journey, where a character embarks on both a physical journey and undergoes an emotional change. It acts as the better-known volume in a two-hander with the Iliad. Where the Iliad was a meditation on duty, loss, sacrifice, and violence, the Odyssey provides a template for modern storytelling that is still felt in popular culture today. The Odyssey is most commonly known for its middle section, when Odysseus recounts his ill-fated travels across Greece. That part only makes up four books out of the 24-book saga. In reality, one of the key themes of the Odyssey is hospitality and how one should treat a stranger in their home. This theme is established early on when the story focuses on Telemachus for the first few books. Because Odysseus has been gone for his entire life, Telemachus is lacking in a lot of knowledge about how a king should compose himself. His visits with Nestor in Pylos and Menelaus in Sparta serve as lessons to the young king. These two men treat Telemachus well in the hopes that he will learn from them how a guest should be treated. This theme continues on as the story shifts to Odysseus. His spirit is nearly broken by the time he arrives on the island of Scoria, but the treatment he receives at the hands of Arete and Alcinous helps restore his own faith in humanity. The first half of the Odyssey is so concerned with the theme of hospitality so that the second half can easily set up the suitors as the main villains of the story. Homer places a heavy emphasis on how vile the suitors are to Odysseus. They're the senior men in the palace, and they refuse to leave because they covet Odysseus's wealth and his kingdom. But none of them wants to actually accept the responsibility that a king has to be a good host. 
When Odysseus and Telemachus finally kill the suitors, they aren't just driven by a desire for revenge. These suitors have dishonored Ithaca by being selfish and cruel. With Odysseus's return to the palace, these men must die so that he can restore Ithaca to its former glory. As was the case in the Iliad, storytelling is a massive component of the Odyssey. It's no coincidence that the reader experiences the bulk of Odysseus's adventures via flashback. A good half of the Odyssey features characters recounting past events or legends to one another, including the conclusion to the Trojan War. While it's commonly known that the Iliad is the story of the Trojan War, that story actually ends with the death of Hector. Several key events from the war, including the death of Achilles, the Trojan horse, the death of Paris, and the sacking of Troy, are all revealed in the Odyssey via flashback as the veterans of the war recall the story. There's a level of self-reflexivity here. Both the Iliad and the Odyssey predate the invention of writing. For hundreds of years, the stories were told verbally, and so it's appropriate that a story that had to be spread via the spoken word is so concerned with how people keep stories alive. Perhaps the Odyssey is so prescient in the Western canon because of how it serves as the unintentional conclusion to an incomplete story. In the time of ancient Greece, the Iliad and the Odyssey made up the first two parts of a trilogy. However, Telegony, the third part of the story, was lost. Unlike the other two volumes, it did not survive the advent of writing and the slow spread of the written word as a method of preserving historical stories. As such, any accounts we have of Telegony are compilations based on historical and contextual evidence, the assumption of what the original text may have been like. The Telegony tells the conclusion of Odysseus's legend. It follows the further adventures of Odysseus and the rise of Telegonus, son of Odysseus, and the witch, Circe. Telegonus only learns of his true parentage when he reaches manhood, and he sets out in search of his father. He's caught in a storm and washed up on an island. The king of that island thinks that Telegonus is an invader and attacks, though Telegonus manages to kill his attacker. It's only after the man lies dead in the sand that Telegonus learns that he in fact landed on Ithaca, and the man he killed was Odysseus, his father. And thus, the legend of Odysseus comes to a close. Again, this is a summary of the second-hand telling of the story of the Telegony. In terms of the stories that exist literally, Odysseus's tale ends with the Odyssey. That ending, where he's happily back on Ithaca with his wife and son, is a far cry from the ending laid out in the Telegony, where Odysseus dies at the hand of his own bastard son. One wonders how the Odyssey would be viewed if the Telegony still existed in its original form and was as widely read. But, on the other hand, it's almost appropriate that the Odyssey ended up as the unintentional conclusion to the story. For a tale so obsessed with storytelling, it makes sense that the Odyssey would end on a note that left Odysseus's story open for further adventures. 
While part of the hero's journey is the successful end of that journey, the legacy of a hero lies in how we, as readers and listeners, want to imagine that character in new stories and new adventures, inspiring us to reach new heights, even if our goal is simply to return home. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse and type mythology in the search bar and don't forget to follow us on facebook and instagram at parcast and twitter at parcast network we'll be back next week with another epic tale mythology was created by max cutler is a production of cutler media and is part of the parcast network it is produced by max and ron cutler sound designed by michael langsner with production assistance by ron shapiro and paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Colin McLaughlin. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Ahrens Diamond, Susanna Corrington, Heston Mosier, Mani Brahman, Brett Schneider, and Jack Shulruff. Mm-hmm.